Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today, the feast of St. Teresa of Avila, a doctor of the church. She was a Spanish noblewoman who chose to enter monastic life, a Carmelite nun, became a prominent Spanish mystic, a religious reformer, author, and as I said, a doctor of the church. And I thought it would do us well to think a little bit about this extraordinary woman, and I've asked Dr. Anthony Lillis, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Academic Officer at the Avila Institute to join us. He also serves as Associate Professor, Admissions Director, and Academic Advisor to the Academic Dean at St. John's Seminary, and has been appointed as the Academic Dean of St. Patrick's Seminary and University in Menlo Park. His area of expertise is the spiritual doctrine of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity and the Carmelite doctors of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and St. Therese of Liso. Well, Anthony, it's great to have you with me. Thanks. Well, Al, thanks for having me. What a wonderful day to get to meet you and talk about a really great saint. Yes. Well, let's. Uh, my understanding is that... Um, Growing up, she was uh, born into a comfortable household. Uh, she was not what you would call uh, a spiritual prodigy. Well, that's uh, well, like our own lives. There's a little bit of mixture. I mean, when she was uh, when she was very young, she and her brother had resolved to become martyrs, and so they. They left the house. Their uncle had to actually track them down. They were going to go to the south of Spain and offer their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so there, there was something heroic going on. And when she was a teenager, she actually snuck out of her home without her father's full knowledge and joined the local uh, Carmelite monastery. And, um, and that required a little bit of reconciliation between her and her father. So, so, so what was, are these stories about her enjoying the equivalent of romance novels? Well, she, that's the ambiguity. Okay. <laughs> While these very, very noble things were going on in her heart, she, she also like enjoyed the culture at the time and, and some of the, some of the stories. So it's a little bit of reminiscent of maybe, uh, uh, Ignatius of um, Ignatius of Loyola, um, and and she also had a lot of worldly friends. Even after she entered religious life, okay. that weren't particularly good w- with her for her spiritual life. So she was she was a bon vivant who wanted to become holy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what were her early years in the in the uh, monastery like? What kind of life did she live? Well, by our standards to, today, we would say her life was relatively strict. Uh, but, um, but in fact, though, she wasn't responding as fully to the Lord as she could. And one of the things that holds us back from a response to the Lord is a lack of simplicity in our lives and renunci- renunciation. And religious life at that time, although it was removed from the world, uh, in, in the Carmel she was at, uh, it was... There was a lot of compromises in it. You know, uh, Father Nolt and uh, Cardinal Sarah both talk about the spiritual disease in this time as being a kind of spiritual lethargy or Akkadian. And she was afflicted with the same thing, because even though she had done made some good decisions, a total renunciation of um, her past life and of the friendships and the attachments she had, she, she was a little bit afraid to do that. She was afraid of saying no so that she could say yes to God in a more radical way. Hmm. 
when does she begin to feel within her uh, a demand to go deeper? Well, um, it kind of comes and goes uh, throughout this period. Uh, she, uh, uh, at different times, she, during this time, she has very serious issues with her health. And I speculate that because of those serious issues, she began to ask some deep questions about her life. And that led her to begin to pray. But the moment she began to pray, the moment she began to give herself more fully over to the Lord, he began to do things with her that were not um, uh, comfortable or convenient or um, at all familiar with her, and it scared her. And, uh, and so she would back off. One of the things would be, uh, as she began to invest into prayer, instead of becoming better and better um, and, and getting more and more control over her life, what she saw as she invested into prayer was how sinful she was. Mm. And it seemed like as she prayed, she got worse. And this is what scared her, and it would take the intervention of a couple different saints to help her get over that fear. Wow. That's a... That's an interesting f- feature of her life, isn't it? I mean, I, as I think about that, was that preparing her for a great pur- purification or purging? Yes. Uh, this is the beauty of, of what we call mental prayer or contemplative prayer, mm-hmm. uh, prayer where we use our mind and heart with the Lord, is it always, if it's authentic, it always leads us to a deeper conversion, a, a, a change of our judgments about ourselves, about God, about the world, about our lives. And God calls us into this not because He is upset or angry or displeased with us. Uh, he calls us into this because He loves us, and He wants us to live life to the full. We, for our part, though, feel Him call us into this, and we're afraid. We're the ones who, who are, are afraid of what God wants to do in our hearts. And so we don't always let prayer take us into the conversion away from sin and in, into a deeper devotion that, um, that God yearns for us to have. And this, this was Teresa's uh, journey when she uh, reached around the 30 years of age. Um, uh, she began, um, she was walking on her way to, um, to prayer, she was going up these steps, and there was a statue of Jesus, and the statue was Jesus scourged at the pillar with the crown of thorns on his head. The Ecce Womo is the name yes. of the statue. She saw this, and she had the experience of not simply looking at the statue, but looking at Jesus himself, who um, gazed back on her with love. And the one thing that can overcome our fear is the love of Jesus. Mm. If anyone's afraid of what God is asking, just let yourself discover the loving look of Christ. And she fell on her knees and she, she, she begged Jesus, she, I'm not going to get up until you give me the grace never to backslide again. Wow. And, uh, and that was the grace given her. And so that becomes a key moment then in her spiritual development. That, is that kind of a final conversion? No, that's the beginning. <laughs> that's the beginning. <laughs> okay. So, so um, I, you know, I, I wish that it was all just one moment like that uh, for my own life too. But, <laughs> but what God does is he uh, he starts something beautiful in our hearts, but it unfolds over time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, 
another key moment would be a, uh, a, a couple years later, uh, she was again experiencing the same thing where she was drawn into mental prayer, but as she drew into it, she saw how sinful she was. And when she confided this to her spiritual friends, they said, they said there was something wrong with her prayer. So she eventually talked to Francis Borgia, St. Francis Borgia, the disciple of Ignatius of Loyola. And he said, your problem is that you have more faith in your weakness and sin than you do in the love of God. You need to learn to trust in the love of God. And that, and then working with her spiritual director, would lead her on a, a pathway that would make her a radical reformer and promoter of mental prayer in her time. How old is she when she has that meeting with uh, uh, St. Francis Borgia? I think she's around 34, 35, okay. somewhere right around there. Okay. And so it's within a short time after her, her experience on the stairwell. And, um, and then there are other graces of prayer that carries her. You know, for her, mental prayer is nothing other than a conversation with Jesus who loves us. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church quotes that when it talks about what is contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is nothing other than a conversation with the Lord. And um, it's interpersonal, and it, it demands vulnerability mm. on our part, humble yes. surrender. Uh, but then the Lord, uh, as we do that, He's able to take us to the next step. And that's what we see go on in the life of, of Teresa of Avila. It, it will take her like another 10 years before she starts the reform that she, she envisions. But the seeds of it are already being planted when she begins to experience um, the Lord in this very beautiful kind of prayer. And do the reforms grow out of these experiences? I, I think they do. I th- what happens is she, um, as she discovers renunciation and poverty and simplicity, as she discovers that when you say no to something out of your yes to God, how her love is enkindled and her life becomes more meaningful, she realizes that this isn't just for her, but that others would benefit from, um, from what she discovered in prayer. And so she begins to counsel others. Even before her conversion, people thought that she was a master of the spiritual life, and a lot of people would go to her for counsel. And she was somewhat ashamed of that because she was very very much resisting God. So uh, lesson learned. Yeah. Just because somebody talks about prayer doesn't mean they, they've surrendered. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but then, but go then ahead. you know, has they, has they come to her, and as she grows... Um, she sees how they're making progress, and they all begin to yearn for a more simple kind of life than she knows in the incarnate, the, the uh, convent of the Incarnation, and that's what gives birth to the reform that she starts. Okay. So it, it goes back to this, this relation of simplicity in the spiritual life? Yeah. You know, not letting, not letting the things and relationships hold us back yeah. from, from our love for God. And and it it requires a simplicity of heart before him, a kind of childlikeness. Mm-hmm. And and the more we do things to dispose ourselves to that, the more God can do with us. That's right. Uh, uh, 
did she begin any of her, any of her writings yet, uh, or those in the future? Those, I think she's around 52 when she begins to write her life. And this becomes um, her first major spiritual writing, mm-hmm. and it kind of explodes. Uh, uh, people um, uh, at this stage of the game, there uh, a couple houses have been formed. People want to know how she learned to pray the way she did. Yes, and she tells about the conversion I, I we shared earlier in the interview. Okay, very good, Anthony. Hold it there. We got to take a break. We'll come back on the other side, continuing talking about. Uh, St. Teresa of Jesus, Teresa of Avila, who's foundress of the uh, Discalced Carmelite. And uh, we'll find out about the reforms, but also we'll learn more about her uh, writings, which have been so challenging for so many. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and I have with me Dr. Anthony Lillis. As we talk about the life of St. Teresa of Avila, we we were uh, talking about her uh, again. Uh, her life is really focused on prayer, um, and it, it seems as though her her major changes in life come as a result of praying not so well, and then she learns to pray better. And is that true? Is that her, her life is really dictated largely by? internal uh, uh, events rather than external? Well, they kind, of, they kind of come together in a certain way. For example, her conversion, like I said, there was the movement of prayer, but there was also the fact that she was very sick. Yes, okay. And, um, and so, so the external things and the internal things kind of uh, uh, blend together in, in what you might call divine providence or happy accidents. Yes. Somebody might look at a personal illness as the worst thing that could ever happen to you in your life. Right. But God can make that into the most wonderful moment of grace. Yes. Uh, for you and everybody else. And that's that's the kind of thing you see in her life. There a lot of internal stuff, but God used external things too that that unfolded. What are the circumstances that lead to her founding uh the first convent of the reform, uh St. Joseph's? Well, um, uh, there is, she has kind of a group of um, uh, spiritual um, uh, daughters who are, they're yearning for something more. And, uh, and she's a charmer herself. She's yeah. really hard to say no to. And so she found, um, she found a family that was willing to donate uh, uh, some buildings and land for her dream of a reformed convent. And uh, and by this time of, of her life, she's uh, she's already begun to advance into the higher levels of mystical prayer. And one of the one of the things that goes on as you grow higher in mystical prayer, we find this both in Teresa, but also John of the Cross, is your love of God becomes so intense you you feel compelled to do heroic and um, adventurous things for Him hmm. and for her as a contemplative religious, the idea of founding a community was definitely uh, required a lot of conversion, yes. and, uh, but, but also hard work and courage. And, uh, but her prayer had uh, stirred that up so deeply in her heart, she didn't even think twice about it. She, she, she engaged in it. There were lots of hardships, 
but the the convent of Saint Joseph or San Jose on the other side of Avila was was opened with with a very small community, uh, notwithstanding a lot of external pressure and politics and all of that. Yeah, yeah. But they took took their stand and and pushed it forward. What kind of resistance did she get from her uh, you know original uh, convent? Well, they were um, uh, uh, they were. Uh, not all of them were very happy with this. They saw this as kind of uh, um, a betrayal of who they were. were. Yeah. And also, they, they viewed her as being very filled with a lot of pride, mm-hmm. and um, kind of like, who do you think you are yeah. that you would do this? And, we we and know so who you are. There was a lot of reluctance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of relu- reluctance and upset. Uh, which would continue later on. She would be actually appointed. She would be sent back to the the convent of the Incarnation, where she started as the Mother Superior. And so you have all these huh. resentful sisters, and now you're you're given the task of leading them into holiness. And uh, and you can just imagine the dynamics. But she never she was never afraid of that. <laughs> That's amazing. Um... So tell me about when she begins writing her life. That's the first thing she writes, is is her life. Yeah, she she begins with her life, and then soon after she she writes her life, um, she um, what happens next is she uh, uh, her life gets put on the index of books by the Inquisition. They're concerned that there's some kind of errors in it, and she she submits her life, actually, to uh, St. John of Avila, who also, his writings also went in front of the Inquisition. He's not the same as St. John of the Cross. Right, he's, right. he's like a, a a spiritual father for Teresa of Avila. He and uh, Peter of uh, Alcantara uh, both kind of mentor her. And and so while that is under um, under the Inquisition and people don't have access to it, uh, she sets out and writes uh, other works, uh, like uh, The Way of Perfection mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, Her Foundations. Eventually, she'll write uh, The Imperial Castle uh, uh, closer to the end of her life. And that, that work, it kind of um, summarizes or uh, brings together all her insights of a lifetime into this great spiritual classic, The Imperial Castle, that brings us deeper and deeper into the center of the heart where Jesus dwells. Uh, um, uh, but but the first work, uh, the one that converted, for example, Edith Stein, was the life. There's yeah. something about the life of Teresa of Avila. When you read it, it just captures your heart, mm-hmm. makes you yearn for prayer. So each of her works are, are spiritual classics in various ways. Uh, my guess is that 50% of our listeners right now are saying, you know, I've heard of these works, uh, but they sound too hard, too remote for me, too difficult. How would you tell them to approach uh, Way of Perfection and the Interior Castle? Well, um, uh, the, I would actually encourage them highly to begin with her life. Yeah, if that's you right. get to know her, she charms you right into prayer. If she charms you into conversion, you begin yearning for things that you would never yearn for. And her language is not highfalutin uh, or complex. She's extremely down-to-earth, 
if anything, she goes off on tangents, and that might be annoying for some readers. It was for me. But mm-hmm. the tangents, what I've discovered through the years, the tangents are almost more important than the substance <laughs> of, of her argument. You know, uh, they, they, get, they get to you. Um, the way of perfection, uh, uh, this, it sounds uh, uh, so like remote and esoteric, but it's not. Uh, it's a commentary basically on the Our Father, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and it's, it shows you the, the, the closeness between the vocal prayers that we're saying and, uh, and this mental contemplative prayer. Her contention is that if we pray the Our Father with our whole heart, it leads us to the very highest echelons of perfection. And our problem is that we don't pray the Our Father uh, the way the Lord intended us to pray. Sometimes we just race through the right. words and don't let the meaning of the words grab our hearts. Mm-hmm. But if we do, it can be a pathway to the highest states of union um, and holiness in this life. Yeah. What was her relationship like with St. John of the Cross? Well, um, it, it's a, a powerful story. Um, when she uh, when she's beginning her reform, at this stage, she's going outside of Avila and starting uh, convents all over Spain. And she hears about this really small little friar who has been studying for the Carmelites and for the priesthood, uh, but has decided to become a Carthusian. She meets him, I think it's in Alma de Tormes. She says, she, she meets him and she says, don't go into the Carthusians. We need prayerful priests right now out in the world. We need, I need you to help me bring the reform that I've started with the sisters to the priests because we don't have enough Carmelite priests to act as our confessors and spiritual directors. And without really, really well-trained spiritual directors, theologically, who are also going deep into prayer, uh, our, our reform is vulnerable to um, a, lot of, a, a lot of misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. Will you stay in the world and help us? And oh. he says she yes. asks, so he starts out kind of being mentored by her, but at a certain stage, she begins to seek spiritual direction from him. Huh. And when she goes, when she goes to the incarnation as Mother Superior, she directs him to serve, to leave the convent where he's at, and to come there and to serve as the spiritual director there for herself and for the sisters, because he's she's so convinced by his counsel. Wow. Wow. It's then that he's taken away to prison. Yes, and she. What are the circumstances? For, what are the circumstances for him being taken to prison? And were his own brothers responsible for that? Yes, they were. Um, the, not the uh, brothers of the reform itself, um, uh, although the brothers in the reform will get him towards the end of his life. It was the other Carmelites who weren't part of the reform who. Um, who, kind of like we said with Teresa of Avila, were very concerned that this was too radical, mm-hmm. uh, that to order your life this radically to prayer, this, this might be unhealthy. And so they, uh, and there was confusion around leadership, who had jurisdiction over what, and John had rightful jurisdiction uh, to uh, do what he was doing, and he knew it, uh, and so he would endure nine months of prison and torture, really, wow. um, uh, they attempted to get him to repent of the reform. They tortured him because they believed he was being obstinate. 
And that whole nine months was a dark night for Teresa of Avila. She prayed and fasted and was torn apart for, for John. Uh, when he finally gets out and uh, uh, there's kind of a new beginning, by this time, they didn't know. They thought that John might have been killed in, in you know, his body buried somewhere. So when he gets out, you know, this is a moment of joy. But Teresa of Avila, by this stage of the game, she, she has other spiritual directors that she's begun to work with. And, uh, and so he doesn't have the same role in his life that he did before he went into prison after he comes out. Uh, but he has a bigger role to play in the actual reform of Carmel. It was during his prison years that he wrote all the most important poetry, and that poetry would become the basis of, of the spiritual teaching he would give to help further the reform. Mm. And, um, and so the two saints actually worked very closely together. The complementarity of, of man and woman before the Lord um, uh, reaches this kind of beautiful spiritual expression in their friendship and their relationship with each other, in their complementary spiritual doctrines that lead to this explosion of mental prayer that the Carmelites are at the heart of. Tell me a little bit about the circumstances surrounding her death. Well, um, here, uh, this is uh, um, a more recent area of research for me, because I'd gotten so much into her grades of prayer that that the biographical material had, <laughs> had eluded me. But I went, I went on a pilgrimage with Dan Burke to yes. Spain, and... And um, in a place called Alba de, Tor- de Tormes, uh, the, um, uh, uh, she, she was going to run off to help uh, start a convent in Madrid. It was her dream. A lot of people had called for it, required some leadership. But there was a, a, um, a dignitary, a woman, who had been good to the reform uh, and, and begged her to come there to see her on her way to Madrid to help to help with circumstances there. And so um, out of an extra act of love, she went there and then died. Wow. And it was a surprise to everyone. Mm. Um, okay. uh, it's interesting, though, that God had a plan, uh, you know, in God's plan, that convent in Madrid was going to start. Uh, uh, it wasn't God's plan that Teresa of Avila started. Right. But right. rather, the disciples that she formed started it, and um, it, so it was passing things on. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's very helpful acquainting Al, us with St. Teresa of Avila. Al, I'm so glad to get this opportunity to talk to you, and thank you for calling me and having such a great conversation on this feast day. Thank you so much. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.